Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through bandcamp.com. Catalyst with a K, and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. reasons why the sharing of medical data that could be used to gain new insight into diseases can be hampered. Privacy concerns, regulatory burdens, and the need to manage security risks are among the significant impediments. Syntegra believes it can solve these problems through its artificial intelligence technology that creates synthetic data sets designed to mirror the statistical properties of real data sets while removing all links to the original patients behind the data. We spoke to Michael Lesh, co-founder and CEO of Syntegra, about the obstacles to data sharing, how synthetic data sets are developed, and why they might accelerate the pace and lower the cost of research. Michael, thanks for joining us. Delightful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to talk about synthetic data, how it can be used in healthcare, and your company, Syntegra. Perhaps we can begin with some context, but before we get into the case for synthetic data, I wanted to talk about a more basic question. Data is all around the world of healthcare. We're very good at generating it, but the challenge has been to turn it into actionable information. What have been the limitations? Is it adequate amounts of data? Is it knowing what data points matter? Is it structuring data or, or is it a computing issue? Yeah, you know, I mean, people have said that there's way too much data and not enough information. And data is basically stuck in silos um, throughout the healthcare system in academic medical centers, uh, in life science companies. Why is that? The real issue is patient privacy have to remember that a lot of this data arises from the normal course of care with patients, you know, or patients who have been enrolled in a clinical trial. And there's an ethical mandate that that data be maintained private so that it's impossible to identify the individual. So privacy is an ethical mandate. I mean, data sharing is also an ethical mandate so we can make the best use of the information that's out there to help other people. But privacy sort of sits on top of that. And that's really the main reason that um, data sharing is difficult and actually becoming even more difficult. With the right data at the right time, what's the potential to transform healthcare? What's the payoff that providers, payers, patients, and drug developers see? 
Sure. Uh, if we had unlimited access to all of the healthcare data in the healthcare system, the diagnoses and treatments um, that innovators want to develop would happen much quicker, much, much quicker. A lot more researchers would have access to the data and essentially patient health would improve much quicker than under the current paradigm. One of the barriers to improving the data landscape, as you were just talking about, is getting people who hold data to share it. How right. critical an issue is improving data sharing for us to leverage that data that's already available? Oh my gosh, I mean, it's, it's really critical. Um, you know, I think COVID may be one of the best examples where data sharing is not just nice to have, but urgent. Um, and, you know, you see it in the newspaper every day that, you know, we can't get access to COVID data. Scientists can't get access. The government is holding on to it. Um, drug companies are holding on to it. And that's a big problem because then the only people who can do research on COVID at the level of individual patients, i.e. precision medicine, are the holders of that data. So if that data were made uh, more accessible to researchers on a patient by patient level, um, but with a guarantee of privacy, that would rapidly accelerate our ability to do basically precision medicine on, uh, on COVID patients. What are the barriers to data sharing? And I'm thinking more broadly than just privacy concerns, although I take it sure. privacy concerns are a big part of that. Well, I mean, privacy is certainly one. Um, there's something called interoperability. So data exists all over the place in different formats and different encoding. Um, uh, there are efforts, there have been efforts for a long time to try to develop more uh, interoperable ways to, to uh, that data can be mingled and shared. Um, so that's certainly one. Um, and then, you know, there's just a sense that people who gathered the data feel like they own the data. Uh, and that could be a medical center, drug company, or even just an individual scientist. There's a sense of ownership there, and you can understand that. Uh, whoever holds that data feels like they put in the effort. But I think we would all benefit, all researchers, if the data could be shared in a way that maintains privacy. And it would even make things like interoperability easier because, for example, we, we create synthetic data and we can create synthetic data in a uniform form so that we can actually help to solve the interoperability problem, even with synthetic data. To what extent has de-identification been able to solve the concerns about privacy over data? Well, de-identification was sort of added um, to the HIPAA regulations, uh, the portability uh, back in the 90s. And the idea was, you know, okay, uh, certain people need to see this data. Maybe it's uh, billers, you know, it wasn't necessarily just for research, um, doctor's offices, uh, et cetera. And um, HIPAA guidelines required removal of 18 fields of the data, you know, the name, uh, the gender, sometimes um, zip code, phone number, URL, et cetera, email address. So that was fine in the age before significant electronic medical records. Um, in those days, medical records were faxed around with paper. So HIPAA was a lot easier to, um, to enforce. Nowadays, um, it's 
quite easy if you have a large data set of so-called de-identified data, an attacker can link that data with other sources of public data, maybe census, voting, you know, uh, Facebook, et cetera. And by doing that linkage attack can identify specific individuals in the source uh, data. So in, in essence, linkage attacks have made de-identification uh, really broken and re-identification, which is what you don't want, is now way too easy to do with a theoretical attacker. Well, let, let's talk about synthetic data. This is a term that may not be familiar to some of our listeners. What is meant by the term synthetic data? Sure. I mean, broadly, what it means is that you take uh, either a set of data or even a set of rules and guidelines and create a data set which looks like the original data uh, or looks like the physiology of a group of patients, but is, let's say, realistic, but not real. Um, and there's a variety of ways to create synthetic data and Syntegra has, has one of those, which we feel is uh, perhaps better than any of the other methods that are out there. I imagine there could be cost and time benefits around such things as compliance. If you're using synthetic data, what, what are the benefits that come with this? Oh my gosh. I mean, if you have data, synthetic data that precisely mimics the data from which it comes from, but that data has no ability to be re-identified, then you don't even need to comply with HIPAA. HIPAA doesn't apply to data sets where there's no identifiable patient. There's no real patient in that data set. What that means is the data, uh, which normally can take six months or a year to go through all the regulatory and legal uh, hurdles and uh, financial hurdles, that data can be made, made available almost instantly. So it's a much more rapid way to get data available to researchers and other uh, organizations that need to get access to that data. Now, it's important to remember though, because just because there's access to it doesn't mean it's any good, right? I mean, it can be synthetic, uh, but it uh, may not really match the underlying data. So it's not as useful. We call that uh, statistical fidelity. But the other thing is you have to be able to prove what you say, which is the data is truly private. There's no way to take the synthetic data set and work backwards to get to the original data. Um, and if you can do that, you can show statistical fidelity and a guarantee of privacy, then that data set becomes extremely useful. And again, is available to researchers very rapidly over the course of days rather than years. And what can you do with this data? I mean, is it interchangeable with actual data sets? Well, sure. I, I, I mean, the method that we have based on the studies that we've done to date show that it's an extremely accurate uh, representation of the original data. You really can't tell the difference between the real and the synthetic, but again, you can never go backwards. Now, what can that data be used for? Again, the data we produce is what's called patient level or individual level. That means whoever wants to do precision medicine needs to have access to a lot of patient level data and what that can mean practically is, let's say in the COVID epidemic, rather than aggregate data, like you know, 
patients above 65 are at risk for getting really sick with COVID, I mean, not all those patients are going to get sick, right? So how do you differentiate someone who's over 65 who will get sick and who won't get sick? Well, if you have access to large data sets of patients who are 65 and older, some of whom had COVID and some of whom don't, you can develop a model which will determine who will have COVID and who won't. And then you can concentrate your treatment, uh, your preventive treatment uh, on the patients who the model says are most likely to become sick with COVID. There's a number of other use cases for uh, synthetic data. I mean, it can be used in drug trials, um, designing clinical trials ahead of time. So you can do what if analysis. Um, you can look for longitudinal cohorts um, that look like the patients who are going to get a drug, but who can act as what's called a synthetic control. So there's a number of applications. Um, uh, we at Syntegra are trying to create data sets that are useful for a whole range of applications and probably a lot of applications that we ourselves haven't really thought of, but the researchers that are out there want rapid access to that data. I think researchers and drug developers are often frustrated if they're getting work data sets from academic sources where they won't give them patient level data, they'll give them data in the aggregate and they really wanna see that patient level data. You know, my question though is when you create a synthetic data set, how do you know all of the various associations that might give an unexpected insight are aligned if, if it's synthetic at a patient level? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I would say that Syntegra has spent most of our time and effort developing uh, mathematical validation for both the, um, uh, the ability for the data to be quite accurate representation of the original data and privacy. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, analytics, um, machine learning based predictive analytics are sort of the ultimate in, uh, um, in testing data sets or in using data sets. That's what precision medicine is. You wanna find out for any individual patient, what the outcome will be. Well, we can take um, an entire EMR, including genomics and notes, an entire medical record system, 5 million patient records, vast, you know, petabyte of data, create a synthetic version of that. Now we create a machine learning predictive model on the real data, and we create a machine learning model on the uh, synthetic data, and we keep aside 20% of the data. And if we run that, real data through the model created with real uh, data, we get one result. And when we run that data through a model created with synthetic data, we get identical results. And we've done this, you know, a number of times now. Um, obviously, you know, it's a work in progress as we get additional data sets, we'll be performing that type of statistical validation. Um, but that's a high, if, if you can train a machine learning model uh, with synthetic or real, and the outcome is the same. That's a very high level of confidence. Um, so, you know, those are the type of methods. I will also say one thing, one additional thing, which is there's this concept now in artificial intelligence and machine learning of um, explainability, right? So, you know, okay, so I took uh, a thousand variables on a million patients and I created this predictive model, y you know, 
that's a black box. You know, how did that outcome uh, uh, occur? Well, we actually use some advanced um, uh, explainability uh, algorithms, something called Shapely, and we're able to show the features that were important in determining the prediction of that model. We can use that explainability algorithm on data that was created with, uh, or, or predictions that were created with uh, the synthetic data and predictions that were created with the real data. And the feature importance comes out to be the same between those two. So that's a level even deeper because we're doing this thing called explainability. We're helping scientists understand why the results they get uh, are there, but we also can show that the same type of explainability is present in the synthetic data. There's growing interest in the use of real world data. Are there implications for synthetic data in that regard? And can it be used to accelerate adoption of this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, real world data um, is just another way to say, you know, the patient data that occurs as a result of normal clinical care. Um, and that's, again, that's in these silos. So uh, it's hard to access the real world data um, at any level of detail, genomics, uh, physician's notes, uh, which are unstructured, et cetera. That data is very hard to get. Uh, it can take a long time. And, um, you know, and therefore the kind of real world data that's available now is not very good, let's put it that way. We, with synthetic data, because we can take an entire data set and create a synthetic version, we can create a form of real world data that is superior in a lot of ways to the way real world data is now um, accessed. And you know, I will say that the FDA in particular and the NIH um, are very interested in improving real world data because the whole point of using real world data is you save patients from having to undergo uh, long clinical trials, um, and you can get the results of drug testing or device testing much quicker. The FDA is using our synthetic method to begin to analyze whether synthetic data can be used for real world data. So we're in conversations with uh, the FDA, you know, very frequently with the NIH very frequently. And we really believe that our version of synthetic data will be a very good uh, substitute for um, the current way that, synthetic, that that real world data is being used. We've seen some willingness on the part of regulators to use natural history studies, particularly in regards to rare disease therapeutic Correct. trials as control arms. Is there a potential to use synthetic data as a control arm in a study? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the real world data is a very particular case where um, synthetic data can be useful in any application, including for what's with synthetic control arms. Um, the reason is you have to kind of dig back into how uh, rare disease data has been made de-identified. You know how you maintain privacy, and one of the ways that's done is to is to remove small cohorts from large data sets. Well. Rare diseases are often small cohorts. So once you de-identify data, which you need to do to be able to use it as synthetic controls, suddenly you don't have the, the real world data uh, for rare diseases anymore. With synthetic data, the kind that uh, we generate, you can maintain 
all of the information and the patterns that exist in rare data and have that be present in your synthetic data set so that regulators, uh, life science companies that want rare data will have more than enough patience to do their analysis because it's synthetic. You talked a little bit about the way you go about validating the data, but have you done things to validate the data for external people like regulators or potential customers? And what, how, how do you go about doing that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Right now, we're very involved in an NIH, uh, it's called the N3C a collab, a COVID collaborative study um, that includes data on patients who were tested for COVID and then the patients who actually had COVID. It's about 3 million patients now from 80 academic medical centers. And the NIH uh, is very interested in being able to create a synthetic version of that vast data set. Again, so that scientists can get access to it almost instantly with very little regulatory friction. Well, the FDA uh, and the NIH has asked us to be the one uh, to create a synthetic version of that entire data set. Our, we have uh, created uh, a white paper in which we describe in great detail all of these me metrics. I mean, this is, it gets down to deep math and deep computer science. Um, I won't pretend to try to explain it right now, but suffice it to say there's a whole package of validation metrics on both synthetic, uh, uh, on synthetic patients that include both statistical fidelity and privacy. And again, we're in conversations right now with the NIH to adopt our fidelity metrics as the one that they, the NIH will use and the FDA will use going forward. Ultimately, what's the company's product? Is it to offer synthetic data sets or is it to work with data holders to convert their data into synthetic data sets? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, uh, and it's, it's ultimately both. Um, in the you know, short to medium term, we can go into say uh, a life science company that has a data set that they can't share with other parts of the company. And we can convert that data from uh, uh, the real data that the R&D group can't access to a synthetic version that the R&D group can access. So that's uh, software as a service. However, um, going forward, we're talking to uh, like large healthcare systems, academic medical centers who will contribute their data in exchange for something of value that goes back to a very large data commons that we're creating. So we will take data from multiple uh, data sources, create synthetic versions, and now have a data commons with very deep detailed real world data that is synthetic that combines the data from multiple sources. So then we have this data commons, which from a business standpoint, we can license that data to uh, drug companies, device companies, insurance companies, et cetera. Where do you think we are in terms of people using synthetic data? And what do you think it'll take to make this a standard practice? That's a very good question. Um, 
I should say there have been a number of attempts at using synthetic data in the past. Uh, most of them, frankly, didn't work very well. Um, our algorithm is distinctly different. We use something called language models and transfer learning. It's an AI-based approach. Um, and uh, we believe, and we found in the work that we've done, that it's a much better form of synthetic data. So basically, you know, I say we need to climb the ladder of trust, right? Um, a medical center that has a very strict uh, uh, legal department is not going to be the first. However, um, we've done a number of validation studies. We did a study with uh, a dementia group in Europe um, that actually included genetic data. Um, uh, we have access to the entire data set from Tufts Medical Center. And again, we're working with FDA and NIH, and I think there'll very shortly be a significant announcement about that. So, uh, and the Gates Foundation as well, as uh, I, I should have mentioned, we're also under contract with the Gates Foundation to create uh, a, a way to do synthetic uh, real world data. So our expectation will be that as we uh, create synthetic data for these various proof points, that it will become more and more accepted um, because it is of great value. And over time, uh, it will become, we hope, a, a standard form of accessing real-world data. Michael Lesh, co-founder and CEO of Syntegra. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.